Hi, my name is Renata, and I am a public historian who specializes in 20th century social history. And my name is Greg, and I'm a professional packaging designer and graphic artist with 15 years of experience. We are longtime friends, and despite growing up in the United States, we are also longtime fans of the Eurovision Song Contest. After years of enjoying the contest together, we created the eSpot Podcast as a way to combine our professional skills with our love of all things Eurovision. Before we begin this episode, we want to make a statement of solidarity with the people of Ukraine who are resisting the military invasion of the Russian Federation. We are against this war and encourage everyone listening to contribute to the relief effort in any way they are able. We believe that music has the power to bring people together and to foster peace and understanding. That is one of the things we love so much about Eurovision, and it's part of why we started this podcast. This is the first of our Spotlight series, which looks in-depth at countries that participate in Eurovision. In today's Spotlight on Norway, Renata will start us off with an overview on Norwegian history, culture, and ethnomusicology. Then I'll take a closer look at the Melody Grand Prix Song Contest and Norway's participation in Eurovision. We will finish up the episode with an interview with Norwegian singer-songwriter Elsie Bay, who was a finalist in this year's Melody Grand Prix. So, let's start the show. The Kingdom of Norway is a northern European country encompassing the western portion of the Scandinavian peninsula and several Arctic islands. It shares its long eastern border with Sweden and its comparatively smaller northeastern border with Finland and Russia. Norway has a long rugged coastline on the Atlantic Ocean and Barents Sea, and much of its mainland is dominated by mountains. The physical geography of Norway was largely shaped by the movement of prehistoric glaciers. When the glaciers receded during the Ice Age, they left behind nearly 2,000 fjords and 400,000 lakes. Though Norway still has numerous glaciers, they are under threat due to global warming. Thanks to its high latitude, Norway is also the home to another natural wonder, the Aurora Borealis, or Northern Lights. The aurora featured prominently in Norse mythology and still captivates the imagination of people today. Norway has a population of 5.3 million people, including approximately 1 million immigrants and their descendants from all over the world. The largest immigrant populations in Norway come from Poland, Lithuania, Somalia, Sweden, and Pakistan. There are also a significant number of indigenous people living in Norway, especially in the northern extents of the country, including about 60,000 Sami people. Norway has two official languages, Norwegian and Sami. The most widely spoken of the two is Norwegian, a North Germanic language descended from Old Norse. Norwegian has multiple dialects, which are divided into four main groups, Northern, Central, Western, and Eastern. 
Some linguists also consider the South and Midland to be their own dialect groups. Norwegian also has two official written standards. Norwegian Bookmål, or Booktung, is a Norwegianized variety of Danish, while Norwegian New Norsk, or New Norwegian, is a language form based on Norwegian dialects and developed in opposition to Danish supremacy. Sami is a group of Uralic languages spoken by the indigenous Sami people of Northern Europe. Sami has at least 10 distinct languages divided into Eastern and Western subgroups. In Norway, there are about 15,000 speakers of North Sami, 500 speakers of Lule Sami, and 300 speakers of South Sami. Several Sami languages are endangered or nearly extinct, in large part to past policies of Norwegianization and assimilation. Norway also recognizes three minority languages, Kfen, Romani, and Skando-Romani. Kfen is a Finnic language spoken in the northeastern extents of Norway by about 5,000 people. Romani is a Western Indo-Aryan macro-language spoken by the Romani people, and Skando-Romani is a North Germanic-based para-Romani language indigenous to Norway. Because Romani and Skando-Romani people are traditionally travelers, there is no geographic concentration of their languages within Norway. Human habitation in Norway dates back to 12,000 BC when receding glaciers freed coasts from ice and opened up territory for sealing, fishing, and hunting. The earliest settlements in Norway date to 8,000 BC and are credited to the Komsa and Fosna cultures, hunter-gatherers who used stone tools and constructed wooden-framed boats. Farming and animal husbandry were common in Norway by 2,500 BC around the same time that Indo-European speakers arrived, from which the Norwegian language developed. The Nordic Bronze Age began around 1500 BC and is characterized by its longhouse settlements, distinctive burial mounds, and prolific examples of rock carvings. By 500 BC, the Iron Age had emerged in Norway and contact began with the Roman world. This period was marked by the creation of the runic alphabet and the development of clan structures. It is also a period of increased migration of Germanic people from the south who further influenced the development of the Norwegian language. The Viking Age commenced during the 8th century of the Common Era, and what followed was two centuries of expansion through trade, raids, and colonization. The Vikings are of course famous for their longships, civil hordes, and weapons of war, but little is actually known about their music. Because their music was not transcribed, most of what is known about it comes from the archaeological record and oral tradition. Viking songs were based on epic poetry, and they played instruments such as pan flutes, hornpipes, woodwinds, and stringed instruments but it's impossible to know exactly what the music sounded like. There are, however, written accounts by visitors to Viking Scandinavia who remarked on the music that they heard. An interesting observation was recorded in the 10th century by an Arabic-speaking visitor who remarked, Never before have I heard uglier songs than those of the Vikings. The growling sound coming from their throats reminded me of dogs howling, only more untamed. 
Christianization of Norway began around the year 1000 and brought with it a period of instability, civil wars, and struggle over succession to the throne. The church became increasingly powerful at this time, which had a great impact on political, economic, and cultural life in Norway. We know from material evidence that choral singing was practiced in Norway as early as the 12th century. It was cultivated within the monasteries and used as a form of religious education for the masses. The population of Norway more than doubled between the 11th and 13th century. Most of its population lived under a system of tenant farming on land owned by either the king, the church, or the aristocracy. The wealth created under this system brought about Norway's golden age in the 14th century, a peaceful time characterized by a growth in trade with the British Isles and German-speaking states. In 1380, Olaf Hakenson inherited both the Norwegian and Danish throne, creating a union between the two kingdoms. In 1397, his mother, Queen Margaret I of Denmark, brought the Swedish kingdom into the union with Denmark and Norway. The three kingdoms existed under a single monarch until 1523, when Sweden pulled out of the agreement, ushering in the age of the Dano-Norwegian realm, which persisted for almost 300 years. The kingdom of Denmark-Norway was controlled by the kings in Copenhagen, who imposed their language and religion on the people of Norway. Danish was introduced as the official written language, igniting the Norwegian language struggle, which eventually resulted in the multiple written forms of Norwegian that exist today. The Danish kings were also followers of Martin Luther's Reformation, and the introduction of Lutheranism as the state religion in 1537 sparked a fierce Norwegian Catholic resistance movement. During the 17th century, under the reign of the ambitious King Christian IV, the court of the Danish-Norwegian kingdom became renowned as one of the most musical courts in Europe, second only to that of Queen Elizabeth I of England. Christian IV was known for hiring many excellent composers to produce music for his court, such as the early Baroque instrumentalist Mons Petersen. Christian reigned for 59 years, the longest of all the Scandinavian monarchs, and he engaged his kingdom in multiple wars, including the Thirty Years' War with Germany. His successors continued in his footsteps and waged a series of wars with varying outcomes. Despite these ongoing conflicts, trade flourished within the Danish-Norwegian kingdom, and Renaissance ideals permeated the culture. During the 18th century, many learned societies were formed, such as the Royal Norwegian Society of Sciences and Letters. One of its founders, Johann Daniel Berlin, was a late Baroque composer and organist who produced the first Norwegian textbook on musical theory. Only five of his orchestral compositions have survived, including this violin concerto in A minor. When the Napoleonic War broke out, Denmark-Norway joined on the side of France to devastating consequences. As part of the 1814 Treaty of Kiel, Norway was ceded to the King of Sweden. As a response to the treaty, the Norwegian resistance convened a constituent assembly and wrote a constitution for Norway. 
What they established was a constitutional monarchy that split power between Parliament and the King. Though Norway had its own constitution, it did still share a common monarch and foreign policy with Sweden. Beginning around the 1830s, a movement called Norwegian Romantic Nationalism took hold. This movement emphasized the uniqueness of Norwegian national identity through the visual arts, classical music, literature, and popular culture. One of the most prominent composers of Norwegian Romantic Nationalism was Ule Bull, a child prodigy and virtuoso violinist known as one of the best violinists in his day. Ule Bull's music is representative of the refined taste of Norwegian society's upper echelons. But at the same time he was composing music, folk musicians introduced their own expressive ways of playing. One of these artists was Tarje Augensen, also known as Malargutin, a legendary folk musician who played the Hardanger fiddle, the national instrument of Norway. Milargutin was also a friend and inspiration to Ule Bull, who once said of him, There has not been one fiddler that has made me content in such a way. It should not go unsaid that the period of national romanticism in Norway also had a dark side. Beginning in the 1850s, an official policy of Norwegianization was initiated with the goal of assimilating non-Norwegian-speaking native populations of Sami and Kfen people. Norwegianization involved isolating children in boarding schools away from their communities, limiting instruction in the native languages, and systematically changing Sami place names into Norwegian forms. Even the practice of traditional music was suppressed, and the distinctive Sami yorking, a type of singing, was seen as sinful. The subjugation of Sami and Kfen people continued in the 20th century. However, some communities defiantly retained their cultural practices, like reindeer herding and yoiking. In 1905, the union between the Swedish and Norwegian kingdoms dissolved, and Norway gained its independence as a constitutional monarchy. The parliament passed several social reforms, adopted a policy of neutrality and war, and Norway even became the second country in the world to have women's suffrage in 1913. During the early 20th century, the world was rapidly changing, and new styles of music like jazz embody those changes. In 1938, the first Norwegian jazz record called Tiger Rag was recorded by the band Funny Boys, a jazz orchestra from Oslo. When the Second World War erupted, Norway maintained a neutral position, However, its strategic location with access to the North Sea and Atlantic Ocean made it a target, and in 1940, Norway was invaded by Germany. The government in exile escaped to London, coordinated with the Allies, and eventually abandoned its doctrine of neutrality and became a founding member of NATO. The post-war period was marked by a move away from Nordic and Germanic musical traditions towards more Western styles from the United States, Britain, and France. This cultural shift culminated in 1960 when Norway premiered in the fifth edition of the Eurovision Song Contest. In the next segment, Greg will take a closer look at Norway's participation in Eurovision and its national song contest, Melody Grand Prix. Stay with us.
When Norway joined Eurovision in 1960, they followed a model already in use by their Scandinavian neighbors in Denmark and Sweden with the introduction of their very own national final, the Melody Grand Prix. And now that there's an American song contest airing in the United States, Americans should soon have a better understanding of how these types of contests work. But longtime Eurovision fans have been following up to 20 national finals at any given year, which can be an exhausting and overwhelming endeavor. But why watch so many? Well, the big difference between our new song contest and these national finals is our song won't be going to Eurovision, and theirs will. And some diehard fans want to see and hear every potential song that could represent any given country at Eurovision. These competitions are just a small show compared to potentially getting a ticket to the grand final of the Eurovision Song Contest. But just how effective are all these competitions at finding a Eurovision winner? Do these national final winners even do well at all? In this segment, we're going to take a deeper look at Norway's Melody Grand Prix and its roller coaster ride of results. Sit back, it's a bumpy ride. The shows of the 1960s were much more dressed up affairs. People in tuxedos and gowns, sweeping orchestral music, regional juries, and a much smaller format than the exuberant shows today. In the very beginning, each artist sang their song with a small combo of musicians before singing their songs again with the full orchestra. And the first winner was the Sami-inspired song, Boy Boy, sung by Nora Brockstedt. She ultimately came fourth in Eurovision, and everything seemed fine in the world of Norwegian entries. Three years later, Norway would start one of the most unimpressive records in Eurovision history, the record for the most last places in the contest. The 1969 contest is famous for a multitude of reasons, but namely for having four winners, and poor Norway came last. The tie for the win caused great uproar from not just Norway, and the next year Norway, Finland, Portugal, Sweden, and Austria all boycotted the contest. When the nations returned in 1971, things weren't any better for Norway. They came last again with their song Lickin' Air, sung by the young artist Hanna Kroch. And it just didn't seem to be getting any better. In both 1976 and 1978, the country would come last two more times, which leads us to wonder, what was going on with these national finals? Were the winning songs really the best, or was something else going on? Well, no, not really. The contest was such a light programming affair in the nation with an ever-evolving format. Organized by the Norwegian Broadcasting Corporation, known internationally as NRK, the contest was reformatted several times in the mid-70s, with as many as four different formats, from a 12-song final voted on by regional juries, to a four-song final with the original concept of performing the same song twice in two different styles. The Norwegians really couldn't seem to settle on how they wanted to choose their song, and this mixed bag of results may have been the reason for this which came to a head at the 1980 Melody Grand Prix when the controversial song Samir Eidnan by guitar crooner Sverik Schelsberg and the traditional folk singer Mattis Hete came into the competition. 
The song is about a hunger strike undertaken by a group of Sami activists in regards to the building of a hydroelectric plant in the northern Sami lands. And this struck a chord with the Norwegian public, but with its non-traditional song structure and the way the song seems to stop to bring in the yoiking section of the song, it divided the Norwegian juries. Without any televote of any kind, yet, it came down to a tiebreak. Each jury member had to choose between the two songs at the top. And in the end, Samir Eidman, meaning the same land, won by a single vote. Their performance at Eurovision is now legendary, and maybe one of Norway's best remembered entries. And yet the song only came 16th out of 19 entries. Still not the best result, but a memorable one. And sometimes that can be just as important. Norway was riding that high in 1981, when they came last again. And by now, they had come last six times, which no other country could claim, and no other country would want to. They needed a change. And since her last place ranking in 1971, the singer Hannah Krog had been planning her own form of Eurovision vengeance for her nation. Teaming up with fellow MGP winner Elizabeth Andreasen, they formed the group Bobby Sarks and took their Schlager hit tune, Let Us Swing It, to Melody Grand Prix and won the right to take their song to Eurovision 1985. With a title meaning Let It Swing, they brought the right energy and the right sound to the contest to finally bring Norway's first win. After 24 attempts, they had the longest losing streak in Eurovision history at the time, and had only received six top 10 scores along with their record six last place attempts. I'm sure Hannah felt vindicated, and they're still among the most popular of Eurovision wins, with the group Bobby Socks often appearing in anniversary events. With a win finally in their pocket, and a notable hit with their 1980 entry, the Norwegians began brainstorming a new way to find their Eurovision entry, and after three okay results in the contest after their win, it seemed time to introduce a new aspect of the Norwegian Melody Grand Prix that can bring the most controversy in a song contest, and that's the songs duel. It seems that the tiebreak in 1980 gave the organizers at NRK an idea, and so, in 1988, it all began. This is how it works. First, there is a series of semi-finals, where four songs compete in a set of two duels. These songs are voted on by a panel of 1,000 public viewers chosen by NRK. The winners of these duels each advance to a final of 10 songs. These 10 songs then compete in a final where they're voted on by a group of regional juries to find a winner. Now, this format would again change and evolve over the years, and it seemed hard to predict which format the Norwegians would use. Just two years after the duels were introduced, they were dropped in favor of another concept called the Super Final, where five songs are chosen in a final by regional juries, and then those songs are chosen on by a mix of regional and expert juries. Woo. They just couldn't seem to make up their minds. And maybe that showed, as in 1990, despite the Norwegian song having the same theme as the winning song that year, they'd received their seventh last place in Eurovision with the song Brandenburger Gore. Poor Norway. You'd think their win in 1985 was a fluke. <laughs> 
And yet, a decade later, and just five years after their previous last place showing, the Norwegians won with a special song that still holds a unique record amongst Eurovision winners. The song Nocturne by the group Secret Garden only has 24 words sung in Norwegian, making it the winning song with the fewest lyrics. Coming off their win, they'd come second the next year when they hosted Eurovision in Oslo, which was, fun fact, co-presented by Morten Harkett from the band AHA, who originated the 1980s mega-hit Take On Me. Norway seemed to be on an upward swing when, again in 1997, they'd finish last with their fourth zero-points finish. This was the beginning of another record, the most zero-points, or nil-point, as Eurovision fans would put it, of any other nation. In 2001, a super-final chose the Norwegian entry, and yet again, it was last place for Norway. But at least this time, they got three points. This loss, however, meant more for them than just a bad result. Due to the expanding nature of the contest and all the countries that now wanted to compete, the Eurovision governing body decided to relegate a few of the worst placing nations so that they could keep the grand final below 25 entries. This meant that for the first time since they boycotted the show in 1970, there'd be no Melody Grand Prix. The MGP would return in 2003, this time rebranding their super final as the gold final. Jostein Hasselgaard would win in this now televoted show with a landslide, taking his song I'm Not Afraid to Move On to the hotly contested competition in Riga. With multiple favorites, Norway was a dark horse in the 2003 contest with its saccharin ballad. The song, however, managed to come fourth in a show that ended with a top three all managing to beat each other by one point. Norway's fourth place meant another thing. They would now automatically qualify and would not need to compete in the newly created semifinals. These semifinals were introduced to avoid relegation, which Norway would be grateful for. As in 2004, they managed to receive their 10th last place result at the Eurovision Grand Final meaning they'd now need to qualify for the final, which they managed to do in 2005, 2006, and 2008. Now, Norway has held a few less-than-ideal records in its history at the Eurovision Song Contest. So, in 2009, they finally got the chance to beat a good record, like the most points ever won in a contest record. With a win of over 387 points, they easily won the contest with the hit song Fairy Tale by violin pop crooner Alexander Rybak. His record would eventually be beaten, but under a different voting system which makes his point record still valid in a certain way. With their third win now, and more countries joining the contest, Norway's distinction as a low-ranking country was starting to diminish. Portugal and Iceland had now been competing for almost just as long and had yet to win at all, and Norway had at least won three times. So, who cares if they've come last ten times? Maybe it's time to experiment and send something really different, like debuting the first non-European language to the contest since the 1980s different. 
that's what the Norwegian public decided in 2011 when they chose the hit dance track Haba Haba featuring lyrics in Swahili. Sung by the stunning and effervescent Stella Mwangi, the song was a fan favorite from day one and many people expected the performance to do very well. That's why there was shock and outcry when she failed to qualify for the final. Hope was briefly restored in 2012 when 2G's song Stay at least qualified for the big show, but despite a solid performance and performing last that night, he only took home 7 points and gave Norway its 11th final placement in the contest. Oh Norway, what can you do? Send pop, send rock, send dance. It wouldn't matter, just middle of the road results and non-qualifications. Even bringing back Alexander Ryback wouldn't make a difference, which they did in 2018. What part of traditional Norwegian music have we been missing since the 1980s that once gained Norway some popularity and notoriety? Something recently brought to international fame because of a certain blockbuster animated movie. Oh yeah, Yoike. For the group Kano, 2019 seemed like the perfect time to introduce their sound, mixing modern pop music with traditional Sami singing style. And with their extremely dynamic performance of their wonderfully catchy song, they managed to take home a different type of win introduced to Eurovision in 2016. From then on, we would get to see the international juries and the televotes as two separate votes. The winner of those two combined would be the overall Eurovision winner, but from then on, we'd have a jury winner and, unless someone wins both, a televote winner. That year, despite only 40 points from the jury, Norway won the televote, taking them from the middle of the scoreboard to 6th place overall. Kano has since become a popular mainstay at Eurovision events, even recently performing at the Australian National Final with their popularity so high they've been touring worldwide. Of course, the COVID-19 pandemic caused the 2020 entry to be relegated, and 2021 gave us another popular entry with Tix, our first artist at Eurovision with Tourette's Syndrome, who brought a wonderful message of ability inclusion to the 2021 contest, along with a great amount of attitude and fun. Despite an 18th place showing, he's already proven to be a friend of Eurovision and fans are already hoping for a comeback. Which brings us to this year and the winning entry from Subwoofer, Give That Wolf a Banana. This song has already brought back conversations about the value and validity of the so-called novelty or joke songs, but only time can tell us how well the comedic dance song will do at Eurovision. They won taking home 54% of the vote, just edging out the alternative rock band Northkid for the chance to represent their nation at a very interesting contest. With that, we're going to talk to someone who actually competed in this year's Melody Grand Prix, the wonderfully talented Elsie Bay. Here's our conversation, recorded shortly after her semi-final performance. We are really excited to introduce today's guest, 
Oslo-based singer and songwriter, and a finalist in this year's Melody Grand Prix, Elsie Bay. Elsie, thank you. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you guys so much for having me. So we're really excited to talk to you. Um, we did a little bit of research on your career because you are a new artist, but you've really done a lot and it's quite impressive. Uh, so you had your breakthrough in 2014 when you were only 17 years old, when you were in your pop duo with uh, Elsa and Emily. Yes. And then after that project ended in 2018, uh, you started your solo career as Elsie Bay and writing songs for other artists while you were attending university. And then of course the pandemic happened. So that was a turbulent time. So we would just like to know a little bit about what that period of time was like for you and how it influenced the music that you're making now, uh, having gone through all those transitions. Um, well, first of all, thank you for a really great introduction. Um, so I think when when the pandemic hit, I had written a lot of songs for my solo project and we were kind of ready. We had a few demos and we were kind of ready to like show them to record labels and just trying to see if I could get a deal and see if we can, you know, get some money into it so that we could invest uh, and finish the productions and the mix and the master and release it. Um, but then the pandemic happened sort of right in the middle of that. So um I just spent a lot more time writing, um, attending writing camps, trying to do what I could do, um, even though everything was like in lockdown. So do a lot of Zoom sessions, um, write a lot with the same people in Oslo. Uh, and um, now we thought that by now, of course, the pandemic would be over, but mm-hmm. it isn't. Um, so, you know, I just I came to a point where I just, just had to say, okay, I can't wait for this to be over. I have to actually just uh start um and luckily mgp uh is still happening and when i was offered a spot there i thought you know what this is a perfect way to just release my new solo project that's amazing wow um and in 2021 was a big year for you uh in addition to completing your bachelor's degree in criminology and political science your song heaven made was featured in a korean south korean tv drama uh and then you competed in mgp last year as a songwriter for uh, emmy's witchwoods mm-hmm. and now that you're writing songs for yourself again and releasing that material uh, what can you tell us about any differences or similarities in your songwriting process when it's a solo or or collaborative process Okay, so I think, you know, when I was working with Amelia, it was like it was we had to sort of try and find like a common ground. Um, so we had to write songs that, you know, I wrote songs that she was okay performing and she wrote songs that I was okay performing and we wrote stuff together. And it had to sort of fit. Um, yeah, just find a middle ground in music. But now that I'm alone and I have a solo project, I basically can do whatever I want, um, which was, you know, um, something that I had to figure out, okay, what do I want now that I don't have to match it with Amelia's taste? It could, could basically be anything. Um, and it turns out that it is kind of close to Elsa and Amelia. It, it's not very far away. So I was I was making music that I liked <laughs> before as well. Um, but this time, I think it's going to be more of the songs like Ocean and Avalon from Elsa and Amelia. And, um, and yeah, and also, you know, writing for other people, it's, 
that is that's a fun thing because uh, other people have so different artist projects that there also you can basically write anything depending on just what the project of the artist is. So like which words for Emmy is very different from my music, but so fun to write because there are other rules that apply. Witchwoods is a great song. Um, I thank you so much. I actually did not see um, um, MGP last year, um, so I didn't know the song. And I was on on Spotify, and it was just you know uh, like a Scandi pop playlist. And Witchwoods came on, and I remember saying out loud, "Oh my God, what is this song? <laughs> this song is." really special and it, and it is I, I was so happy when I was researching and saw that you wrote that song because I was like oh oh my god that was such a brilliant song and she has something totally different this time so like that's a wonderful contrast thank you so much it was it was my favorite last year oh thank you and, uh, and I, um, my boyfriend he loves that song it's, mm-hmm. it's, so it's in too many of his playlists <laughs> Thank you. I'm glad to hear. You should. You must thank him for that. Um, definitely will. <laughs> so let's move on and talk about your new song, uh, "Death of mm-hmm. Us." Um, first of all, uh, it's a beautiful song, and I think the poetic quality of the lyrics and the progression of the orchestral arrangement um, really shows a great maturity in your songwriting ability. And I would just uh, like to know um, a little bit about the story that you were trying to tell with the song and why you chose it to be your solo debut for MGP. Well, first of all, thank you so much. Um, Well, the story behind it is personal to me. Um, But it's really important to me that other people can sort of relate to it and interpret it in their own way. Um, so I don't like to talk too much about like specifics, um, but it is a love story. Um, but I think that's all I, I want to say about it. Uh, yeah, uh, I, I understand. I think that's something that uh, is a bit mysterious sometimes when you are a singer songwriter, because um, it's, it's common for songwriters to also just uh, maybe not go off of personal experience. Um, so it is interesting to know, I guess, that it is something a bit more personal to you. And, and that is really beautiful to make something personal and to give it to your fans to interpret it. And I think that ma- matches, like I said, the, the lyrics are very poetic and one could read any number of stories in that song. So I appreciate that you're trusting your listeners to fill in that story for themselves that's that's beautiful thank you and as for your question about why i chose this one um i think one of the things is that it it fits into my solo project because it is a personal lyrics um and so why it was chosen for mgp was was probably you know because uh i i did show them some other songs as well but this was the one that they liked and i think it's it's also the one that i have that fits the the sort of MGP stage a little more than the others because um, mm-hmm. you know there's something about there's music and then there's music that also needs to be on t- like music on TV um, 
yeah, there, there's a little bit of a difference there. Some songs can be great on radio, but mm. on television, maybe not. And some songs might not do good on radio, but they're great for television. So I think this is, is my maybe my most TV-friendly song. I do think it works. I think it really works on stage. It really works as a recording. It's very strong as a recording. Um, and that did kind of bring... You almost maybe answered my, my next question, which was... Uh, I know you were invited to participate and I did want to know if the song was written for the contest or if it was something you'd been working on already. No, it was actually written at one of these writing camps, just like the same camp as I wrote Witchwoods on. So, so it wasn't written for me, but it was like, since I was alone, kind of alone with the lyrics that day and the producers were more working on like the piano and, and the instrumental. Um, it all of a sudden just became a personal song. And then mm. when I was asked if I wanted to, to do it, uh, it kind of felt right. So it was written for, for MGP at first. Okay. Is that the case with most of the artists this year? Um, I'm not sure. I, I do know that a lot of them attended these camps as an artist case. So like mm-hmm. they were there to see if they could write something for themselves that would fit into M- to MGP. And uh, I do know that there have been artists on these camps who didn't make it to MGP, but they still released a song because, you know, it's a special song to them. Um, so I think it's, it, um, I think there are a few like me, and then there were a few who came with the song from before, and then there were a few who were asked, and then they wrote a song to see if the, maybe they could enter with that song. Oh, interesting. It's fascinating, all the variations, not just within uh, Eurovision in general, but especially in the individual countries. Everyone does seem to have a very different process. And as fans and observers, we don't really get to know much about that. We only get to see, like, the final on the broadcast. Um, yeah. So it's yeah, nice I, to know a little had bit a more. Quest. Oh, sorry. Go, no, go ahead. I actually had a question uh, for the production about that because because I haven't seen a lot of people speak about you know the process before it you know all the songs are released and everybody knows who's who um, so I was like is it a secret that we have these camps and that we select these things in that way and they, they just said no no you can talk about it so so maybe I don't know if, if just people haven't asked but um well we're we were very interested and you know, something we've always been interested to know more about is the production of these national finals like MGP. Mm-hmm. An important function of Eurovision and and of the national finals is, you know, how an artist is going to perform their song at Eurovision on a large stage. And mm-hmm. so viewers can really get a sense of what their song will be on the Eurovision stage. And, you know, that brings us to the inspiration behind your own staging for this song and how it's accomplished. Does uh, NR, does the broadcaster help you with that or does your own uh, representation have to take care of the staging? So actually, I, I do think that there are two different teams, but it's all NRK's people in charge of the staging and in charge of costumes and all that. So I don't think that anyone is bringing... 
you know, it might be possible. I might not know what I'm talking about here, but uh, I think it's it's not normal to bring any outsiders in. Um, so, so it is the NRK team that does that does all the staging. Okay, so do they kind of come to you with an idea for the staging, or do you get to have any input there? Uh, we do get to have input, yeah. So we, we sit down with the team and we talk about what we want. And, you know, um, sometimes they get it right away. Sometimes they don't. So some people are really happy. Some people aren't. It's like a, yeah, it's a creative process where you like, you, you, you know, talking about um, visual things and music and stuff, it, it's hard to do in a meeting when you're not there on stage. Um, but it is a process. Um with the artist to where the artist is very involved. Yeah, so some people go really big, you know, mm-hmm. some people get really subdued. So, you know, we kind of wonder where the budget goes, you know, so. Yeah. Really yeah, well, you know. The... Oh, go ahead. No, see, I am only involved in my own sort of staging. I, I am a songwriter with Uda and Hammer of Thor, but I am not involved in sort of their staging in that process so like I can, I can only speak for myself really but I have spoken to the other uh, artists and so I know that you know me and this person have the same director and all that but um, but where the money goes I have no idea <laughs> <laughs> yeah uh, you know and, and oh go ahead uh, yeah I think just got a follow-up for that um, I'm just I'm curious to know how important the staging feels to you because I know that for the fans and you probably know too from looking at your comments, um, everybody always wants to know like, are you changing the staging? Mm-hmm. Or, and and like, like, it's really a big investment, I think that fans have. Um, how do you feel about that? And is it really that important to you? Or are you really just trying to, to sing your song when you're up there? No, I mean, the staging is really important to me. Um, it absolutely is. And I think, you know, um, I think it's great that people are so involved and, and just want to like, give me tips on what to do next time. Because, you know, we, we have a few weeks to improve the staging if we want to. Um, and so it's, it's great to see that people, because, you know, a lot of these ideas that they have are, are actually really great. Um, and I'm planning to bring those ideas to my next meeting also along with some ideas that I have um so there we will do something about the staging uh, but I'm not sure what just yet I mean things have to change from rehearsal to rehearsal to get the performance right in its own and Mm -hmm. different lighting cues and changing cameras with the directors and I'm sure there's time limits for how long you can rehearse on stage when you get there yeah. There's got to be a lot of technical challenges taking part in a big competition like this. You know, yeah. What What's kind of the toughest part of kind of getting on the stage and being part of a TV show? You know, it's not just writing your song and performing. You're on a TV show. Mm-hmm. Um, so w- your question was, what is the most difficult part or challenging? Yeah, what's, yeah, what's the most challenging part of that process? I think for uh, for me now uh, up until this point has been it's been time because you know this team has to work with all of the other artists as well not just me um, and so we all have to do a sound check one day and so if it doesn't go um, perfectly like if I don't do a perfect take you know that that was one of the two takes that I had that day um, so to just 
sort of um, coming coming from a, a project where when we toured, we were the only person playing that day, for example. Um, now having to uh, just uh, yeah, just change my mindset a little bit and be like, okay, you only have this time. You got to make it count. You got to be prepared. You got all of these things. Um, so that that might be. A, I wouldn't say that it's been like a huge challenge, but like a little bit challenging to just like okay. I need to be really ready mm. and I need to have all my questions ready and everything because it's going to be over really, really soon and they're going to have to move on to the next person, which is totally fair. Um, yeah, you know, the that time limit and learning, you know, just what you're going to do on stage, we just, it's amazing. And you gave such a powerhouse performance thank in you. that pre-qualifying show. And, thank you. And, and, and you are a pre-qualifier for the final. Mm-hmm. And how does that feel to, to know that you don't have to go through those semifinals, that you're already going to be there? Uh, it feels really great. Absolutely. I'm, I'm really, really grateful for that. At the same time, I try to not be uh, make it like um, we have this Norwegian expression, like a um, resting pillow or something. <laughs> uh, where it's like, uh, I still need to be um, bring my A game here, you know? Mm. Um yeah, so I try to stay focused, and I'm really, really grateful that I, I have one more chance regarding, or regardless of how many who would have voted for me last time, but I also feel like I have to prove myself and show everyone that I kind of, um, I wouldn't say deserve it, but that at least it's not weird that I'm pre-qualified. I think you deserve it. I, I do. <laughs> you. I, you give yourself that. You were really fantastic. And your song on you so Spotify much. has been getting a great amount of listens. Uh, you're you're currently number one uh, with your comp- competitors on mm-hmm. Spotify, and uh, so are, it seems to me you're not thinking about touring. You're you're focused on the next competition, the next day, right? Yeah, I think I have to be because you know I would really really love to go to Eurovision. Of course, that would be the best thing ever. But at the same time. Um, there are a lot of other great songs here and a lot of uh, people that I think are going to vote for for other people than me. So so I have to really bring my A-game in order to, to have a chance here, I think. That's the wonderful thing about Eurovision, and I, I think MGP does a great job of it as well, of giving us diversity in music styles and mm-hmm. visual styles so that there is something for everyone if you don't care for... Uh, Fest, you can maybe appreciate LCA, like yeah, like that. Yeah, that's interesting with the one coming up on Saturday where you have like four different genres. Yeah, be cool to see like what the people want. I know I'm very excited. Yeah, me too. Yeah, I think that adds a really nice um, atmosphere. Uh, in fact, I had asked during your live with uh, Farida about that atmosphere whether it's competitive or friendly and you said that it was very friendly and I thought that was very cool and I considered perhaps that is because everybody is a little bit different everyone is a bit authentic and you can't compare and compete against you know it's apples and oranges yeah I I agree with you there actually because this is not about sort of if I don't win then she's going to take my spot 
and I'm not going to be a successful musician. It's not that type of uh, competition. Um, it's like you said, it's so diverse and I feel like there's a place for everybody. And it's, it's really just what does the audience want to send to your vision this year? And that doesn't mean that it's your song isn't good enough or anything like that. Um, so, so yeah, everyone is, is really friendly and just having a great time, uh, as far as, as I can tell at least. Um, so yeah, I'm actually going to do a new live with Farida tonight, but it's going to be in Norwegian this time. Yeah, I've actually been learning Norwegian on Duolingo. <laughs> really? <laughs> Not very good at it. It's very difficult, actually. Mm -hmm. um, so I we've got imagine. one more one more question for you uh, before we let you go. Um, regardless of what happens with the final, what the results are, um, you definitely have fans now. You've got two big fans in America, for sure. Um, and you did mention on that IG with... With, uh, Farida, that you might have an album coming out. So um, as we finish up, can you just tell us a little bit about uh, your upcoming album, when maybe we can expect it, and what kind of vibe you're going for? Mm -hmm. Okay, so um, I do have some songs ready, at least an EP. It might be an album, uh, or maybe we will just split it into two EPs. Uh, I will definitely release some more singles this year. Um, but we have to wait and see what happens in MGP as of like release dates and timing. Um, but yeah, there will definitely be more music, hopefully sooner rather than later. Um, and yeah, it's, it's songs that I've written for the past few years about personal stuff happening to me. Mostly love, typical mm -hmm. me. Um, <laughs> and we are bringing some strings into it, but I think it's got some of the songs are going to sound a lot like Elsa and Amelia. Some are going to be a little bit more, maybe, I wouldn't say hip-hop, you know, but but just a little bit more hip-hop than Elsa and Amelia. Okay. Um, and um, that's probably wrong to say hip-hop. Everybody's probably going to be, this is not hip-hop at all. Um, but yeah, it's inspired by Frank Ocean and The Weeknd and Bonnie Bear. Yeah. Oh, well, that sounds great. Thank you. I, I hope you like it. Yeah. Oh, we'll be waiting for the release for sure. <laughs> thank you. I'll be on it. I'm waiting. <laughs> Great. Well, thank you so much. I hope thank you. you love it. Thank you, Elsie. Uh, really, this was wonderful. Um, we really appreciate uh, not just speaking with us, but the way that you've been open with your fans through social media. It's just really awesome. And I think a great um, example of what makes the Eurovision community so great and that is the love for music regardless of where people live or where they're from so thank you for uh, joining in this conversation with us thank you so much that means a lot to me and thank you guys so much for having me it's been a pleasure wow does it sound like I was deep inside a bunker somewhere apologies for that but many thanks again to Elsie Bay for that interview, and we encourage everyone to check out more of her amazing music. And now, that's the end of this eSpot Spotlight on the nation of Norway. We hope you enjoyed this episode, and stay tuned for more episodes and content very soon. In the meantime, please check us out on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, and TikTok at eSpotPod. Hadet! 